Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Gen Con <laughs> 2019. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. And Gen Con is, if you listen to the podcast before this one, the biggest tabletop gaming convention uh, in the world, as far as I know. Um... We've been going to Gen Con for years now. Uh, I think this is my fifth year at Gen Con, which would make it your sixth year uh, at Gen Con. And every time we go to Gen Con, we always come back afterwards and tell everyone on the podcast about what it was like, what we played, what we saw, what we think is cool, and what we thought was lame. So without further ado, I guess we should just uh, Let's go get through it into... chronologically. Yeah, chronologically sounds right. So what was the very first thing that we did? Well, on Wednesday, we all filtered in. Um... We you want to talk about uh, we, uh, Marvel Ultimate Alliance first? <laughs> oh my god. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we did play a bunch of Marvel Ultimate Alliance, which, let me tell you, folks, if you've complained about a camera in a video game, you know, Mario 64 comes to mind, Ocarina of Time also comes to mind. What are some famously bad cameras in games? I feel like there's got to be, like, a bunch of them, right? Is one of the Devil May Cry's, like, famous for this, like, memeable for this, like, DMC4 or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think one of them. Um, Marvel or- Ultimate yeah. Alliance has the worst camera of all time. Second to none. Absolutely terrible. Basically makes the game unplayable. At, at least parts. as far yeah. as uh, we were, you know, we were playing in a hotel room with two or three people. Um <coughs> Yeah, on, on the couch. Specifically, I think the worst one for us was the bullseye boss fight. Um, like, the, the, <laughs> the camera was just stuck at a low angle and, like, at one point floated under the floor. At one point, it floated outside of the room and the wall still rendered so we couldn't see our characters at all. Yeah, we uh, had to, like, you had to, like, watch because the damage number pop-ups would go through the wall. So you had to see the damage numbers to see if you were hitting anything, <laughs> which was... You know, I mean, it's a good simulation of what it's like to be Daredevil. Um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you know, Marvel Ultimate Alliance, I really love the Marvel Ultimate Alliance games, and I had an okay time, I guess, playing Marvel Ultimate Alliance 3. It doesn't quite hit the kind of hit-the-ground-running magic that I felt like 1 had. I agree um, with that. But it definitely reminds me a lot of 2 in the fact that it's just kind of, you know, fine. It's yeah. good. It's fun. I think a big part of it was that... Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in uh, Ultimate Alliance 1, you started with more powers unlocked. Um, yeah, so in Ultimate Alliance 1, you started with all of your powers unlocked, and then I think you gained alternate powers for each of those slots as you leveled up. Yeah. Um, which definitely was a more sort of dynamic way to play the game. Yeah, and this starts with one, we got to two powers unlocked, and it's just not a lot going on. There, there, are, some, <laughs> there, there are these synergy attacks that were neat, but... Um, I not super practical to use in in uh, in practice, um, but uh, it it just kind of felt static. You know, you, you hit the attack button a bunch, and occasionally you throw out your power. Um, I think also also the way the synergy powers work um, are kind of like their classes of power, and they combine with each other in various ways. And I think because they did it that way, um, a lot of the powers of the same type felt a little samey. Um, I don't know if you felt that way. But, no, I absolutely felt that way. I also thought it wasn't very readable, kind of like what powers synergized with what. I don't know yeah. if you're supposed to figure that out by trial by error or if there was, you know, something in the UI that we're not necessarily seeing. It's really kind of tough to answer that question. Yeah, there was – if you held R2, 
you could see what type it comboed with, and it would flash a portrait of anybody in your team that did it. And also, if while you were doing the power, sometimes an arrow would pop up on the screen, and it would pop up on the little team interface in the lower left-hand corner with an arrow pointing if you could do something, but it was not clear. Also, like, looking at that interf- that, that uh, HUD interface meant that you weren't looking at the combat. It was... It's not particularly great, but it was it was it was fine. It was it was it was a decent time, um, but that uh, yeah, I think that is a, a great way to put it. It was a decent time. Um, what else should be noted that the cooperative, the co-op mode might be better if they uncouple the cameras uh, on multiplayer. Yeah, that might I be don't remember how they handled this in the original online multiplayer of Marvel Ultimate Alliance One and Two, which I did play a fair amount, uh, but I just can't remember how the how the camera. Did they even worked. have online multiplayer? Like the original one was old enough that it might not have. Uh, I'm pretty sure it did. I'm pretty sure both did because I'm. I, I I don't know. I might be misremembering. Uh, I had I felt as though. Uh, I had played both online multiplayer, um, or I had played online multiplayer in both titles, but I could be misremembering. Yeah, I, I played them on the couch, so. Um, uh, what, what was the other thing? Oh, Wednesday night, the other thing to talk about, I guess we can go through the, the food that we got, too. Um, we went to the uh, the Burger Study, which is the, the famous steakhouse in Indianapolis, the St. Elmo's, which we haven't made it to yet, but they have a, uh, uh, a burger place. Um, in the like in the mall that uh, that is attached to the convention center, um, and they have decent beer and they've got pretty good burgers, and uh, they also do a the- like most of the restaurants will do a theme thing, um, maybe not most, but a lot of them will. And this year it was called the strangest thing. It was two burgers with like two smash burgers with like peanut butter and jelly on a, an Eggo waffle. We never ended up getting it unless you got it while I wasn't there, but. Uh, I did not end up getting that. Uh, I we've been to Burger City before, and I have to say that I really like it. Um, you know, I know this isn't a burger review podcast, but I would say that they were appropriately savory and uh, with a hint of tang. I don't know how do how do food reviewers do this? Are there food podcasts? I'm we yeah, there are food yeah, pos- I- podcasters. The Cheeto dust that I licked off my fingers before we started this podcast was delectable. Uh, um. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's the best burger I've ever had, but it was it's it's a good, solid, tasty burger, and you could do much worse at uh, at Gen Con. Uh, so, um, also to note, they take reservations on Open Table, which is actually super valuable uh, if you're doing something at Gen Con because you know there's a, a a billion people all trying to get spaces. Yeah, can you explain a little bit of how you were using the Open Table app? Is Open Table an app that you can open up and it will show you restaurants nearby that yep. have that have open, open tables? Yeah. Okay, like, that you, makes so much sense and is very intuitive. Um, you can I also do like it ahead I, of time, right? Like I was doing it as we were doing it just to make sure we had a place to go to because I figured if we just walked to somewhere, there was a fairly good chance it'd be full. Um, uh, but yeah, it's an excellent app. You know, we're not sponsored by them, but I recommend it to to anybody. Um, I made our, our booking for a restaurant on Thursday night, like a month ago. Not that we needed to, because it was further outside of range. But you know, um, it's it's a great app if you wanna if you wanna make reservations at a lot of places. Actually, um, uh, I guess in Wednesday we can also talk about the hotel, the Alexander, which is our first time staying there. Uh, very nice, very swanky. A little bit further away than I would have liked to have been, ideally. Um, it's just past the uh, field house, which doesn't have anything in it, but it's part of it's a kind of landmark. Um, but it was a kind of swanky hotel. Um, I, I very much enjoyed it. Did you, did you have anything to say about the hotel? 
Uh, I liked the hotel quite a bit, uh, though I will say there is something to be said for the distance. We have evangelized a little bit before about the ability of <clears throat> the you know like the the ability of you and your group to try and get some of that downtown housing. The Alexander is about as far as I would say I would think I would be comfortable uh, being at a walking distance, which was about five blocks um it is reachable in the middle of the day if you know you just needed to get off your feet or you just picked up a book and you wanted to read it um but it is also pretty far away so you didn't have the ability to kind of like drop in and out of the hotel rooms that we had had when we were enjoying the downtown hotel rooms last year yeah um i think it was still better than being on the outer ring but uh it's still, it's, it, it was not ideal. So, but you know, there's only so much control you have over that. So, uh, you know, uh, it's, you could do worse, um, but you could do much better as I think that's the main takeaway I want to say. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. And then the last thing that we did on Wednesday was will call, oh, uh, will yes. call is something that we had mentioned in our previous podcast. Um, but it does bear a certain amount of scrutiny, I guess, for this year because I would say that this year is probably the worst year for will call that we have that we have had yet. Uh, we headed out at about one a.m. to go stand at the will call line and start picking up you know tickets and and badges, uh, and we didn't get back to the hotel till like four thirty in the morning. Now I will mention that part of that is because um, friend of the cast friend of the cast. Zhao had had some troubles that needed to be addressed, which tacked on an extra like 45 minutes or so. Um, But uh, it was interesting to hear from other friend of the cast, Nick, who went at about six or seven in the morning. He kind of just got into the hotel and went immediately to sleep rather than waiting for uh, Wayne to go to that late night will call with us. And he said that he had a much easier time clearing through the line and getting to the other side of it. Uh, what, what, what's, what's your thoughts on that? Do you think that you're going to change your strategy up for next year? Um, I think it depends on, uh, on, on like kind of timing factors, right? Like I think if we're stuck at, uh, like, you know, if, if we, if the earliest time that we can go as a group is like 1am, then maybe I will push it unless I have a really early morning game. Um, but, uh, uh, if I can and I get in early on Wednesday and I might go, you know, middle of the night on Wednesday, uh, or not middle of the night, but middle of the day on Wednesday, rather. Um, the line was already, it was short, but it was existent at 10 a.m. and it opened at noon. Um, but I think if you went at like 1 or 2 p.m., maybe it, it would be okay. Um, at least it would be not a burden to wait in line if you had people to wait with, um, especially if you had nothing better to do. Um, but I think, I think that like, I don't like the line can be super long and it won't take more than three hours, which you know isn't nothing, but is kind of like if your first event is at uh, you know ten a.m., then going at seven is fine. Uh, but if it's at like eight, unless you want to get up at five, I think that your your best bet is to is to just do it the night before and, and deal with it. Um, but I think that's my biggest takeaway from that. Oh, also. Um, if you can avoid it, don't go to customer service late at night. Um, just be, especially that first night, just because it, like we said, we tackled another 45 minutes for us. And that wasn't because, uh, uh, Zhao's, uh, issue was particularly difficult to solve. Uh, it was because that some people in the line had some complex issues, one of which was like 
browsing the events and there was only one person to handle stuff. So um, uh, it didn't parallelize well. It was a short line, but if you get unlucky and there's people in front of you who have complex things to do, you're going to get screwed. Uh, uh, so uh, that that would be my only recommendation. My, my only hard recommendation is, you know, if you're trying to refund a $4 ticket, maybe your sleep is worth more than that. But hey, uh, that's up to you. Um, we definitely did that once for uh, a, a thing that happened on Thursday. So I, I guess we can uh, uh, roll on to Thursday then, right? All right. Well, the first thing we did was get breakfast in the Alexander. Do we want to talk much about that? It was a breakfast. Nah, that, it you know, free, it was, but, it was, uh, it, it was, was hotel right. breakfast. It was pretty good hotel breakfast, but you had to pay for it, which means no thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, uh, the first event we did was Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, um, which is, uh, a, 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 a kind of nostalgia trip for, for Buddy and I. Um, uh, my, the first game of, the, uh, the first tabletop game that I played with any competence was run by Buddy, um, in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay 2nd Edition. Um, and I believe you said it was the first game you ever played too. Yeah, so it was the first, like, real campaign that I was ever a part of. I think the very first game I ever did was Star Wars. Um, I've talked about that on the podcast before, but it was always very disconnected and not very campaign-focused. The first real campaign I ever did, which, by the way, was run by, like, semi-famous journalist Jack Smith IV, who I, you know, I haven't kept up with him. But, yeah, Jack Smith IV, who has, like, you know, 35,000 Twitter followers, uh, was the guy who DM'd my very first, you know, like, D&D campaign. I really love Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. I think it is a really cool and interesting game, uh, game experience. And one of the kinds of experiences that I find to be uniquely served outside of the context of Dungeons & Dragons, right? Um, one of the things that makes Warhammer Fantasy feel so kind of unique and different for me is that in in the same sort of way that, you know, the Luchador game was super different was just that it wasn't trying to capture that same sort of D&D feeling that some of the other kind of like high fantasy games often do, right? The 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 tagline of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay has always been a grim world of perilous adventure and that kind of, you know, grim dark low fantasy, low power, everything can kill you. Um, has always just kind of like oozed from the aesthetics and the mechanics and the kinds of game design choices made by um, by that setting and by that rules uh, that rules framework. I should note that we played the fourth edition of this, and between. So you and I played second edition, right? So there right. was a first edition, which I think came out in the 90s. And then there was a second edition that was published, I think, by Fantasy Flight Games, who have gone on to become, you know, like they do Edge of Empire's Edge. Whatever yeah, they Edge do. Of the the Empire. Most Edge yeah, of the, the Empire, the Star Wars game now. Um <clears throat> They revamped first edition and published second edition along with a bunch of source books and stuff like that. Uh, I guess the license passed on to somebody else because there was a third edition that I know very little about. Uh, my understanding is that it was something of a departure from kind of those roots and that fourth edition has been a return to form. Everything is done by percentile dice. You have weapon skill, ballistic skill, you know, the, the same kind of Warhammer stats. You have careers uh, that you random into. Um and uh, yeah, this was probably my 
this was this was a very good game, I and mean, this is one of my favorite games that I think I have played at Gen Con. The scenario was pretty simple. You know, we were on a riverboat and it comes under fire in a rainstorm by some beastmen and so you have to dock at a creepy kind of in just off of the road and then at that inn it turns out there's a bunch of you know chaos cultists there but the interesting thing that i found about warhammer fantasy roleplay in this instance was we were playing with a, a, with like a very competent party like players who were making kind of the right decisions it felt like at every turn and uh and so i took the liberty i guess to sort of play my character up in a way that made things harder for everyone else and kind of introduced a little bit of tension and drama to things. Um, but like that wasn't, that wasn't overly frustrating. At least that's what I was kind of like yeah. going no, for. You, you definitely for, hit that. <clears throat> yeah. For context, I was playing, uh, I was playing Maznar, a troll slayer dwarf. And in the lore of Warhammer, dwarves can take an oath called the slayer oath where they vow to go and find an honorable death by fighting really tough opponents and so Maznar was always excited to be you know running headlong into danger and we weren't sneaking around and checking for traps and stuff like that um the highlight of Maznar was probably um when we went deep into the basement and stopped the cultist ritual that was summoning a daemon, a daemon Mesnar very much wanted to summon so that he could fight it and finally die and get his honorable death. Um, and when walking back up to the tunnel where Mango's character was talking to essentially the Warhammer cops about, no, 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 officer, I know there's a big chaos ritual that was happening, but we were stopping it. We were not perpetrating it. And so Maznar walks up the tunnel and he goes, sure is a shame we didn't summon that demon. I just, you know, stuff like that I thought was uh, was pretty fun and uh, and funny. And the perfect sort of thing that you can do in one-shots. We've talked about this a couple of times in our Gen Con episodes before, but one-shots are an easy place for you to kind of go outside of the rules uh, of uh, the, the manners, I guess I should say, that come with playing in tabletop games because the consequences are always not really going to be on the other side. Yeah. And uh, I think I, I, I definitely enjoyed the game. It was definitely like kind of a nostalgia blast for me. I, I really enjoyed it. In fact, I think we both ended up picking up the uh, the book. Um, uh, pro tip for those at home, uh, I think it's, they're called Crucible 7 uh, or Cubicle 7. I'll look it up and I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, but uh, they do Bits and Mortar, which is this great program that some of these uh, developers do where uh, if you buy a copy of the – a physical copy of the book, even from your local game store, they'll give you the PDF for free. Um uh, which is which is great. So, uh, uh, so um, system wise, um, it seemed fine to me. Uh, what can I say about it? It didn't like it's a little bit more fiddly than some other systems, but I thought it was fine. Uh, it you know it's true that second edition route. Uh, it's like a roll under D percentile system. Um, I can't really think like I don't know. It's I, I if if. It, it felt um, kind of like, I guess, uh, exploration. Like, it's, it felt like a system that was very much heavily based around combat, which I think is kind of typical for RPGs, especially from that generation. Um, uh, but we also haven't read the core rulebook, really. We just It was mostly just a set of combat encounters strung together. 
Yeah, I mean, it's always tough in situations like this one because uh, you can't evaluate, like, advancement rules. Like, one of the things that I actually really loved about Warhammer Fantasy is that your advancement was a la carte. Um, essentially, you would earn experience over the course of an adventure, and then you would spend down your experience in order to, you know, increase your prowess or something, right? So, so for instance, if you wanted to add... Um, five points in the skill of your choosing. Um, something that you could do was spend a hundred experience. You would get five. You would get five points in weapon skill, which meant that you were five percent more likely to hit on your attacks or whatever. And then the and then you had bigger advancements that were accomplished kind of over time by swapping into and out of different careers. So, for instance, you know, Rubric Drakenhoff, which was the the player that or which was the character that I played in high school, was a human hunter. Right, and so um, I pumped his ballistic skill by by quite a bit, and I ended up going out and buying some higher cal- uh, caliber bows um, and arrows, and eventually I was able to change my career from hunter to marksman or something, um, which increased my uh, you know, like which increased my ability to gain ballistic skill or something kind of along those lines. I don't quite remember the details. Um, and so that was one of the things that I always thought was really great about Warhammer Fantasy and the part of what made Warhammer Fantasy roleplay so strong and so fun. Um, but unfortunately, I can't evaluate whether or not that is still there or if the advancement system that they replaced it with is still good just because you don't get to touch any of that stuff inside of the one shot i will say that they did include a new mechanic that i thought was pretty interesting which was called advantage now for 5e players who have an understanding of what advantage is um it doesn't work in that same way but it basically kind of creates a snowballing effect where if you are successful in your in your opposed roles um over time right so if you roll to um if you roll to attack someone and hit, and then you roll to dodge their attack and they miss, you will start building what's called advantage, which is just flat 10% bonuses on top of flat 10% bonuses, um, which is very cool, but it is also a very fragile mechanic because as soon as you whiff on a roll, like as soon as you lose a roll, you lose all of your advantage. Unfortunately, we didn't play with that kind of rule in mind because we didn't really understand how advantage works. So all of our characters were a little bit more powerful than they otherwise should have been. Yeah, um, it's definitely an interesting mechanic. Um, I was reminded of, 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 I think it's called the encounter or the escalation die in 13th Age. Where as combat goes on, the players get a static bonus. Um, it's supposed to kind of like like the encounters are designed but in thirteenth age so that um they're a little bit like it's a little bit you're a little bit less likely to hit in the beginning and then with the bonus you should be you know, hitting most of the time at towards the end so that it kind of accelerates itself and gives the combat a natural arc. And that's kind of what this felt like, except that there was a bunch of conditions that could reset advantage, so not super sure um about how it's at, how it would play out in kind of a, a longer campaign, but it's definitely interesting. Um, it's definitely, it's definitely neat. Yeah. I would absolutely say, uh, that it is neat. Um, what else, what else can we talk about? What else happened on Thursday? Oh, well, we went to go to a, a, a game and our GM didn't show up. Um, not, not yep, that the, happened. <laughs> it, it wasn't the game's developer's fault. In fact, they were very nice to us. Um, 
uh, and uh, offered offered us a discount. The game we were trying to play was Delta Green. I'm actually really sad that I couldn't play it because it sounded neat. It's supposed to be like uh, like the CIA deals with Cthulhu type of thing. Um, but uh, you know, again, not on our uh, not not on not on the people who make the game on the GM wherever he went to. Um, but he didn't come to us. Uh, didn't run our game. Um, but uh, what else do we do on Wednesday? The only other thing we did on Wednesday is get dinner because we didn't have any other event to do. Uh, we went to this uh, restaurant called Mesh, which was recommended to me by a coworker, um, and it was pretty all right. Um, I'd say a little bit pricey for the quality that you got, but it was uh, you know standard American fare. Um, no, but it was it was it was all right. Do you, do you have any stronger feelings than that? Uh, yeah, I would say pretty all right, and uh, there's not much more to, to say about it, I guess. Yeah, pretty the, all right. <laughs> the only thing I would note about that is it was a little bit further out from the convention center. It was like a mile down. I believe it's called Massachusetts Ave. Um, and it doesn't seem like there's a lot of congoers who go out there, so like maybe that's a place to explore to find more places to eat next year. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, um, it seemed like there were a lot of cool things near uh near it so hypothetically speaking it might be worth to sort of try again yeah uh, and see if that yet and see if that side of things has uh has anything cooler to offer yeah um which brings us then to friday which i think at least for me was uh probably the my favorite event at the con which was heavy rain um how did you feel about it uh heavy rain was likely my favorite event of the con as well um, so do you want to talk about it a little bit since... Yeah, so, uh, last year we sort of discovered the magic of these mega games. Um, we talked pretty extensively about the mega games, which are these big, giant, you know, 70-person extravaganza. Um, Heavy Rain this year was only 45 people compared to last only. year. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, last year was yeah. 70, which is, you know, True. quite yeah. a bit. Um... And uh, and so the the core of Heavy Rain this year really put into sharp relief how cool and fun and awesome these mega games can be. Uh, Heavy Rain reminds me a lot of Game of Thrones in the sense that it is a game that is built around a, a, a powerful ruler who is deposed, right? There is a god emperor, and he has his golden army of immortal soldiers, but the power of those immortals is slowly waning over time. And their and their waning power has made it easier and easier for the different noble houses of the region, which are the player characters, nine houses of five people for the full 45-person complement, to seize power uh, in and of themselves. Eventually... The God Emperor is entirely deposed, and there is a new quest to kind of elect a sovereign. Um, and when I say elect, I really mean scheme and backstab and mount political and military coups to try and create, you know, the optimal situation for the sovereign to rise to power. Um, we were playing as House Snake, which was... Not to say that we were particularly sneaky, though I do think that we were particularly two-faced in the way that we tried to kind of balance our balance our relationships with a couple of the uh, with a couple of the different houses. Um, 
and uh, and Mango, so you were the number one. Yeah. You were the head of the house, and I was the second in the house. And until you, uh, uh, until you died. Until I died, uh, which is something that can happen in these games. Um, but then you respawn as number five. Although I will say that our numbers really didn't matter. Like there's supposed to be the ability to do intra house politics. Um, and I think if it had been like 45 people who all didn't know each other, it would have worked out, but we were like four of a five person team and it seemed like everybody else was at least had like some groups. So like the houses all seemed pretty united and like, you know, a win for the house is a win for, for everybody in that house. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely I – th- I think that they approach this the right way. I was actually critical, I guess I would say, um, of this setup at first. Uh, like, immediately after the event, I was kind of like, you know, this isn't the greatest. And I kind of wish that, like, we had been more sort of, like, united. Um, but I kind of came around afterwards when I was just sort of thinking about the context of all of this stuff. Um, and I think I've kind of come to the conclusion that, you know, like, at the end of the day – the uh, the ability for there to be those kinds of intra-house politics is important to have because it could be really interesting, um, even if it didn't necessarily kind of, like, pop up in our game. And so, altogether, you know, I think it's, I think it's fairly appropriate. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree. Um, uh... Yeah, uh, I you know I had a great time myself. So so I think did, did you did I, I don't think you talked about it, about the ability to kind of move between the different tables, which I think was an important part of making. This yeah, game very much so. So last year's event, Watch the Skies, had you were playing as a country, sort of in like a model UN type scenario, right? Like I was the prime minister of India who led the India coalition, um, and as prime minister, certain members of my cabinet were you know were people that could go to certain places on the field right so for instance we had an ambassador to the united nation that could vote on laws and we had a military commander who went to the world map and deployed our air you know our air forces one of the problems with watch the skies though is that you are locked into your role right like as soon as we decided that warren friend of the cast warren was on uh, was on the model UN or was on the UN, he couldn't ever like move to the military side of the map. And also another friend of the cast, Charles, who was locked to the military role, could never kind of come out of it. But this had this unfortunate problem of when the game was not very military focused because we were really trying to fight for peace and that was the kind of strategy and game plan of our country. Well, Charles really didn't have all that much to do and that really just kind of sucks. Um, whereas in, in, I'm sorry, in Heavy Rain, something that you had the ability to do was move between the different areas of the map at the start of every round, right? So there was the war map, there was the espionage map, and there was the the court of nobles. And so if you wanted to send a bunch of people to the court of nobles, there was there were mechanics that both facilitated that and granted you an advantage if you sent multiple people there, right? In the same way that you were granted an advantage by sending multiple people to the war room or sending multiple people to the espionage map. Um, but there were also penalties if you didn't send anyone to the different maps right like if you didn't send someone to the underground if you didn't send somebody to the war map you could suffer some real consequences for that and i think that flexibility is so important to how this game played out and what made heavy rain just feel so much more fun and engaging uh than watch the skies which i loved by the way uh was yeah and we 
we uh we rotated like I rotated pretty regularly between the underground and court. Um, I think mo- like most everybody else kind of stayed at the table they usually stayed at, but like at one point we literally packed the court so that we could attempt an open rebellion, and that kind of like added its own mechanic because you know everybody knew it was coming, so everybody sent everyone to court. There's like you know forty people standing around this one table except for like the one dude who's over at the war table trying to deal with that stuff. Um, uh, I think it was also an interesting balancing mechanic because there wasn't really any real consequence to not having anybody in the underground, but the stuff at the underground was so neat to do that it was kind of worth doing. Um, like always having at least one person there to at least collect the the, the five uh, kind of tokens that you used at that table was kind of worth it because you needed because you could uh, you could keep them between between rounds. Um, so uh, all that stuff was uh, was, was pretty neat. Um, of course, the, the best part of all this is always just kind of like, you know, talking to people, the freeform parts of uh, the game that don't kind of get codified into the rules. Um, and, you know, I th- this like this year we managed to run into some people that played with the, in the game with us uh, last year, which was a lot of fun. Um, and this is an experience I definitely recommend to everybody. In fact, next year, if we can swing it, I'd like to do two, maybe even. I was actually about to say the same thing. I, you know, something that's been interesting as we've gone to Gen Con kind of year over year is the all the I I've, I feel like I've always been searching for like that new thing. I always walk into Gen Con and I have a goal, right? Like this year I'm going to do this. This year I'm going to play that. Um, last year's goal was to play the mega game. This year's goal was to do, and it's coming, folks, believe me, it's coming, was to do a LARP, a live-action role-play. Um, and I feel like, at this point, I've almost kind of exhausted most of Gen Con for most of its content. I've done the board games, I've done card games, um, I've done... Uh, tabletop games obviously and i feel like i found a good bank of you know games and experiences that i would like to repeat in the future and the biggest surprise for all of those has definitely been these mega games they are so fun and so compelling and even though they are very draining and exhausting man like coming out of the mega games is woof that is tough um it is just is so incredible to be a part of just a big giant group of people who are all working together and against one another and it's all kind of defined by these politics and communication and making you know cool flashy almost like plays i want to call it like making big plays um that uh that has really kind of like taken my my imagination by storm when it comes to gen con events yeah the the, the only downside to them is they are fairly pricey um in terms of even like dollar per hour, the best value you can get is probably doing any of the t- the regular tabletop RPGs. These clock in at about what like five dollars to ten ish dollars per hour of entertainment you can get out of them, and they're great. But if you're on a budget, it might not be the 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 best thing to do. Um, but I would encourage you to try at least one. Uh, uh, like I said, uh, you can always you you can. Uh, you, you can always do more than one if you, if you want to, uh, and you get the time. I wouldn't recommend doing two in a day, though. That seems like I would absolutely be... never recommend doing two in a day. In fact, I almost would sort of recommend uh, giving giving yourself quite a bit of time between doing that and anything else. Um, uh, maybe it was just the kind of like the the nature of how we approach Gen Con this year and like staying up super late on that one Wednesday night before you know only getting a couple of hours on on Thursday. Uh, but I was like really beat uh, for for basically the rest of Friday after we did the mega game. Yeah. Um but the rest of the Friday we played Battle Lords. That was Battle Lords Day, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
So Battlelords is essentially it this is gonna sound mean, but it feels kind of like Shadowrun with the numbers filed off, and it's definitely not that. It's an old existing game. Um uh that uh that kind of got remade for the modern systems, but it definitely feels Shadowrun like in that it's very fiddly. Um and there's a lot of numbers. And uh I don't want to say that the system was bad, but I did not particularly enjoy my my battle lords experience yeah i mean i think it is partly on us i think it's partly on the gm who didn't seem particularly talented um and i think it's partly on the system itself for being a little bit obtuse and kind of um i don't know like tough to tough to get into in a way um i felt like i was constantly questioning things on my character sheet and i didn't have an amazing sense for what i could and could not do in the same way that i have had that i you know that is something that i have a good sense for in other good games even other good games that we just like play for the first time in gen con right like seventh c is a game that i picked up really intuitively and battle lords is a game that i didn't um i also sort of think that because we were coming off of the mega game and i was at least pretty exhausted that i wasn't like really playing at 100 percent and and I got the sense that the GM was not the most experienced and she didn't have uh, a great handle on kind of the story structure and the mechanics. Um, and so the story seemed pretty rote by my standards. Um, it actually reminded me quite a lot of another game that we've done that we had done recently um, at another. What was the we had, we did another like sci fi game that was that kind of like breakout. Do you remember? Uh, it was a breakout. Um at, at Gen Con? Uh, yeah. It what wasn't was really a breakout, it, but it was something where we, like, hacked into... I'm trying to remember what it's called. It was something where we, like, hacked into the, um, like, a mainframe, and we, like, broke into a security office. You oh, might not oh, have Oh, yeah, there. yeah, yeah. This was uh, Alternity. Alternity, yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminded me a lot of Alternity, and it had a very similar kind of like plot structure. But Alternity was much more fun and interesting. Yeah, um, um, I think I think part of that was the GM, but so I think I think a big part of it too was I think Alternity handled not combat better. I think the big thing is is it felt like a lot of this was focused on combat. We were playing a not combat adventure, and it felt like it was just trying to showcase the worst parts of the system. Is is, is the way I'm going to put it. Um, and uh, I, I think part of it is that, like, uh, until you've played the game a little bit, any game a little bit, um, you don't necessarily have a sense for, like, what the four corners of what you're supposed to be able to do is, right? Like, very kind of mechanical systems will tend to hem you in a little bit closer, um, but give you kind of more explicit license to do things. Uh, or, like, it's more explicit about what you can do, whereas more story system, uh, story-driven systems will kind of let you do whatever you want um, and kind of abstract the roles into kind of whatever you want it to be. Um, and it felt like this system felt mechanically rigorous enough that combat wanted to be very well hemmed in, but that um, that didn't quite – like that they wanted us to be freer in kind of the story elements. And it felt like th- – like that didn't feel like it meshed right. Really? Yeah, I mean, this is this is a little bit on the GM, I think. Like, part of yeah. it, I think, is that we were we were trying to come up with a lot of really, you know, like this is one of my favorite parts of Gen Con, right? Coming up with out of the box solutions to complicated problems, right? And we've done this really successfully in games in the past because a lot of the times games will reward that kind of like lateral thinking, right? They don't want you to just fight every you know every guy head on. They want you to 
interact with the system in, in in interesting cinematic ways, right? Like, so for instance, when we did the pirate game in 7C, we had this whole thing about tossing, you know, tossing barrels of gunpowder into the water and then shooting the gunpowder to create a smoke screen so that we could do like a hard turn or something like that and ambush them th- through the smoke, right? Like those are the kinds of things that are fun and interesting about doing games like this, but I felt like every time we tried to do something along those lines in this game, in Battle Lords, we were kind of blocked by the GM, which is just, you know, not super fun. Yeah, and it was weird because it wasn't like... Like, she was receptive to some of the stuff we wanted to do. It was just... It was it was weird. It came out weird. I think we also had kind of like a bunch of competing ideas at the table. Yeah. Um, and like, not that any of that was bad, um, uh, but uh, he like it, it just it just uh, it, it was it was not the best game we've played. Again, it wasn't terrible terrible experience, um, but I don't know if I'd go running back to Battle Lords again. Yeah, yeah, me too. I feel like Battle Lords is uh, thanks, but you know, no thanks. Um, and was that everything that we had done on Friday? Uh, what did we do for dinner on Friday? Uh, was was that the one where we went to the uh, the the Ike and Jonesies? I think it was. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, it's just a bar near Gen Con. Really, nothing yeah. special. Um, so um, the, the only the only thing that I will say about Ike and Jonesies is that I didn't realize this, but apparently, um, like uh, it's called like tenderloin. Um, it's essentially it's apparently an indie thing or a Hoosier thing, I guess. It's uh, it's basically <laughs> it's basically like white people tonkatsu. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a breaded pork cutlet with like you know lettuce, tomato, mayo on it, which I love dongatsu, so I was a big fan. Um, but uh, you know, it's a thing I look forward to exploring more now that I know that's an indie thing I can look out for. Yeah, um, that, that is uh, that is pretty cool. So Saturday was my last day, and I don't remember how it began because I don't remember anything about these this this weekend apparently. Um, well, we started out to get. Oh, we started out being late to to Tower of Gygarn, which I welched on because I thought it was going to be. A, I don't like. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So Tower of Gygarn was the PUBG. I guess I'll call it the PUBG game. Uh, well, that's how they called the, it. They, they referred to it as like a PUBG slash Fortnite type. Yeah, game. it was a battle royale that was actually pretty fun. Uh, even if I think it is. Not great. <laughs> like, there's a lot of things wrong with the game design system. It was a system that I solved pretty quickly, but, like, it kind of didn't matter because everything was being played pretty fast and loose. Essentially, this was this was how the, the game worked. Um, you spawned on, a ran- on, like, an open map, and you rolled 2d20 to determine... You started in a corner, and you rolled d20 for the x-axis, d20 for the y-axis, and that was, like, your starting location on the map. Everybody starts with the same base stats, but there are things called boons, and boons might be, like, precision, where you, you know, you roll advantage on attacks, right? Or punisher, where you have plus three to your to your damage, or whatever. You rolled two boons, um, and then... Every time you killed someone, you got to roll another boon. And every time you died, you got to roll two two boons. Um, everybody could die once. And when you died, you just got picked up off of your map and placed on another map at a battle in progress at full health with all of your boons or whatever. Um, it was a lot of fun just because it was so quick and there wasn't a lot of time to get 
to, to worry about things. It wasn't extremely competitive. Nobody was even really taking it that competitively. We were playing at a table with like two father-son duos who seemed to just kind of be having a good time with it. Another guy called himself Farticus. Um, you get to choose what your name was and what your weapon was. And his weapon was his toxic farts. And so it's just like hard to get bent out of shape you know, about, like, losing or, like, the game design being bad in a situation like that. Do you know what I mean, dude? Um, I did not win. I, I should have won, but I was greedy. Um, you the Certain boons were single-use boons, like a whirlwind attack that hit everybody in a radius or, like, a self-heal. Um, and I had Zhao on the ropes, and I chose to make a high-percentage win play that kept my single-use boons rather than a guaranteed win using those boons, essentially. Um, and I went for the high percentage play, uh, and my percentage was fucking low. So what can you do? I lost. Um, but it was fine, because, you know, then then I lost, and then I just, like, left and went to the dealer hall. Uh, pretty cool, pretty fun. I think I might actually recommend, uh, I think I might actually recommend Tower of Guy Garden, especially because it was only, like, an hour, or maybe it was two hours long. So, hypothetically speaking, it kind of fits into a schedule pretty easily. Yeah. Um, I skipped it because it looked like it was going to be a lot of person at one table, which is not a thing that I, I particularly like. Um, which is funny because yeah, yeah. it so don't feel that way It was a bunch games, of people, but... but it was split between four different maps. So it was maybe like 20 people across those four different maps. So uh, it definitely looked intimidating when we first walked up to it, but once we realized what it was, it was like, oh, okay, this is much more manageable. I also was a little bit afraid that it was just going to like drop everybody into a map and it would suck. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I'm, so I'm, you know, I skipped that. I went to the dealer hall. I think we'll talk about the dealer hall kind of at the end of this. Sure. Um, next thing was uh, we played a Three Kingdoms card game, um, which is apparently based on Bang, which is a game that I had never heard of. Um, but friend of the cast, Zhao, has Zhao and uh, joined us for that game. Um, I kind of felt like... It, it, essentially, you, you, you get a couple of generals um, that are of the same team, uh, or of the same faction, essentially. There are four factions. Um representing the three kingdoms in a neutral faction. Um, they all have powers on them, and then you kind of attack each other. And the goal is to... Uh, uh, the goal is to have your team win um, in case you happen to be allied with anybody else on the board. Um, although it is not guaranteed that you are, and you start out hidden so you don't know who is who. Um, I kind of felt like the game was just like a bunch of like a bunch of mechanics thrown in the kitchen sink um, and needed to be pared down a, a, a bit, maybe even a lot. Um, in a in that I didn't I just didn't think the the uh, the the game was super coherent. Like I think the core of it, where you kind of attack people and you dodge, um, and then you get some unique about powers, was cool. But it didn't seem one particularly well balanced, or two uh, particularly uh, particularly concise or, or readable. If that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, so uh, that game gets a lot of credit from me um because it's a multiplayer game and in multiplayer games it is the politics always makes them just like baseline more fun i've talked about this with magic the gathering and like hearthstone and stuff before but like you know the having having a third fourth fifth sixth player at a table for you to dedicate your resources to 
attacking or protecting is always going to make any of these kinds of card games uh, more fun and interesting, in my opinion. Uh, that said, I basically agree with you that the game was incredibly cohesive. I feel like if I see more of it, I could maybe get into it more. Also, if I had a better understanding of the Three Kingdoms, I have a, I feel like I have like an okay, I have like a C plus understanding of the Three Kingdoms history. Like I was using Dianwei, who had a pretty interesting ability. Um, but uh, you know, like I ended up killing myself by using one of my abilities, thinking that I was going to take Mango out of the game. Like, I RNG'd to deal three damage to myself and then killed myself, so I basically removed myself from the game, but I didn't really feel all that bad about it, just because I do think that the game kind of uh, is has that kitchen sink of mechanics. It was very haphazard. So, it definitely gets a lot of points for being a multiplayer game that was pretty interesting in how it approached the multiplayer system. Um, but otherwise, you know, I could really leave it. Yeah, I think part of it is that, uh, like, I think there there were some big basic editing problems. Like, one of the powers, one of my generals, just kind of like acts like a named a card, right? Or like you could play a thing and, and have a have a card work, and it kind of felt like, and I never saw that card. Um, and it turns out they had removed it from the game, so half of my general was useless, which is its own editing problem. But the idea that anything that isn't a core mechanic is on a card and not explained feels like like a big problem from like a from like a design you a, a user experience standpoint is the way I'm going to put it. Um, uh, the otherwise, it feels it feels like you you how powerful it feels when it felt like the the power level on the generals was super super different. Um, yeah, and. Uh, uh. And Zhao's like, general was insanely strong. It felt like yeah, both of the so both of them were strong, and it felt like they weren't strong because they were in combination. It felt like they were just independently strong. Um, and maybe part of it was that like like some like I feel like maybe that was a little bit too luck based because basically had the power to just deal a damage to someone uh, for free every turn so long as their generals were male. Um, which was a weird mechanic, but like that was essentially random. Which general, which general you had, uh, um, and what what their what their gender was, and and uh, how how they all lined up. So, um, like I said, I think there's a negative good ideas in there. I do want to say that I'm pretty sure that um, the company's run by like just two guys uh, who put this game together, and it's got great production quality and whatnot. So uh, kudos to them for being entrepreneurs, but uh, you know. Uh, I think it could have used a little bit more kind of paring down of the rules. Um, yeah. Um, and then we moved into kind of our individual things. Yeah. Okay. So you tackled, you finally with hell's wrath, you stabbed at thee. <laughs> and I finally have... got to play dogs in the vineyard. Yeah. Um, so tell me all about it. So, um, so, funnily enough, one of the guys that really convinced me that I really needed to get this was this random dude that we played Starfinder with two years ago when it came out. Um, and he happened to be the guy running the game. Uh, a guy named That's Cotton. That's incredible. Uh, he's a I do not nice... remember Cotton, but you told, me that, you told me that as if I was supposed to remember him, so I feel bad. He was, he was, he was at the table with us. He, he was the only person that wasn't one of us at our Starfinder table. Fair um, enough. Uh, but uh, turns out that he got permission from the original author, since it's not in print anymore, to just rewrite the game into a generic system. So oh he's done God. that. It's called uh, Dogs, which is um, Dice, Pools, and Moral. I'll, I'll look it up. I'll put, I'll put a link to that in the description because it's available on, on DriveThruRPG as a PDF. Uh, 
And you can also buy it uh, as a physical book. It's it's like I think nine dollars for the PDF and fourteen dollars for the physical book. Um, but it's this neat system. It's a very narrative system um, where essentially uh, you you have your characters, and whenever they go into a conflict, you roll your relevant attributes, and uh, and you like essentially. You know how some games have tags, like we've talked about tags and fate systems. We kind of came up with a tags idea for diplomacy mod. Um, if you tag in your relevant things, you can roll additional dice. And they all go into this pool. And when it's your turn, uh, you put a raise up of two dice. Um, and uh, and you're, the person you're targeting has to respond and match your number. Um, with ideally with ideally with one die because if they do that they get a special bonus where they get to kind of uh use that on their next attack um but with uh if they match it with two there's no consequence but if they have to match it with three or more they take essentially consequence it's called consequences the consequences depend on um on like kind of your level of escalation if you're talking then it's just kind of like minor setbacks and like reduced uh uh reduced effectiveness but if if you're if you're fighting with violence then you can quickly um, get to like serious injury and almost die and stuff like wow. that. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so, um, uh, essentially, uh, you kind of talk your way through it. Uh, it's a, you know you challenge you kind of narratively describe what you're doing, kind of like Seven C in that like the actions aren't super well defined. Um, uh, it reminded me a lot of Seven C. It reminded me almost a lot of Everyone Is John, which is a very different game than this, but kind of had some of the same flavor to me. Um, and the game we were playing was essentially, it was called Send in the D-Team. Essentially, the idea is is you're in uh, a, su- a city in a world with a lot of superheroes, but, like, you know, your Batmans and your Supermen and even, like, you know, your kind of, like, lower-tier heroes have been uh, all been called off to deal with, like, a real pressing galactic evil. Um, and uh, But there's still, like, petty crime happening. So it's up to you, the kind of, like, you know, D-tier heroes to deal with it, like... Um, we had one character who had telekinesis, but only for tomatoes. Um, and then my character was, uh, a dude who could do magic, but he did it by sweating. So like he, he just had to like work himself up into a funk to get his magic to work. Oh my God. Uh, yeah. And it was, it was, <laughs> it was, it was neat. Um, every conflict you just kind of spoke through rather than like kind of being locked to mechanics, which is neat in its own right. Um, part of the thing that felt a little bit unsatisfying to me is that um, it felt kind of like the the combat was solved before it began. You're just kind of talking through it um, without uh, without too much exception. Essentially, you could roll all your dice and like look at your table and like if your your total pool was higher than the GM's total pool, you've won the encounter, uh, right? Um, and you can both groups can add dice at certain points that screws with that calculus a little bit. And there's some of it like strategically setting up um, a raises so that uh, either you go first or that uh, you know you don't. Um, uh, you maybe you sacrifice a wound so that you can uh, save for a power raise on your own side so that they can uh, that you can take them out a little bit. Um, but uh, it's uh, uh, it's it was neat it was a neat storytelling experience um it had some uh some cool mechanics like when you take those consequences when you take your damage essentially at the end of an encounter um you take all your damage at once and you add up your i think it's your top 
two dice to see what the consequence is. But if you roll only ones, you get an advantage. That's how you grow. Is you have to risk taking an injury. Is is if you get a one, you get a you get a bonus. Um, uh, and it was a, a neat system, but the mechanics were a little bit too light for my taste. I'm still going to pick up that PDF because I think it's a really cool idea, um, and I definitely think that it's it's good for kind of like, like I would definitely do like a like a beer and pretzels type game with it. Um, like sure. a one, like like it's perfect for one shots. I don't think I'd be able to do. I'd want to do a full campaign with it, but uh, uh, it's still a lot of fun. Um, definitely gets into that kind of like shared tor- storytelling experience type thing more than uh, anything else. Um, and uh, shout outs to Cotton for rewriting the entire system. Uh, he's a cool dude. Uh, I highly recommend that you all check it out and uh, uh, get, give it a download. Um, that is honestly pretty uh, pretty insane, but also pretty cool. I guess I would say. Um, so, okay, yeah, so the thing that I did while you were doing this was LARPing, um, and the LARP experience I had was for a game called Eternity's Edge, which is a, uh, a homebrew system by guys local to, like, really hardcore LARPers in, that were local to Indianapolis, um, this is their very first playtest ever of their, like, system and their rules and their mechanics, um, and... You know, kudos to those guys. I had a, I had a really great time. The the I don't know if this is a typical LARP experience, um, but the thing that made it cool was the way it kind of relieved my own feeling of like I guess kind of like anxiety walking into a situation like. Live action role playing, right? Because like you think about that and you think it is the stupidest, nerdiest thing that you could possibly be doing. And the idea that you walk into a group with a bunch of other nerds and you're gonna like you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna not just say, Oh, well, I I tend to the patient, but you're gonna get down on your hands and knees and you're gonna mime out Right, like sticking an IV needle into the invisible arm of uh, of an NPC that is represented on the ground by a note card that literally says, you know, patient six or something with like a light description of like patient six injuries or whatever. And that everybody else like takes you seriously. There was something like weirdly kind of like affirming of that. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like how, you know how players who play D&D but like don't take it seriously can kind of like ruin the game for other people because everybody gets just gets like self-conscious and like D&D is really fun when you can lose yourself in the illusion of it all and everybody puts on, you know, you do an accent, right? And nobody understands what you're saying, and the accent is really bad, and it's really dumb, but, like, who cares? Because we're all having fun, and nobody's gonna, like, shit on you for it. That was what it was like for LARPing, and that's why it was, like, so cool and so fun. I played a combat medic, um, and I there I was surprised at how mechanic-heavy it was. Like, there are some things that you don't mechanize in a LARP like so for instance this was a a kind of sci-fi LARP so we were using nerf guns that were like provided by you know by the people um and every shot that a nerf gun like every time a nerf bolt hit you you took one damage and you had a certain amount of kind of like action movie HP and a certain amount of like vital HP or whatever um 
And as like a combat medic, I could heal your action movie HP, but not your vital HP kind of thing. But like, there's no to hit, there's no dice rolls or anything like that. You hit if you aim your nerf gun at the guy appropriately and you shoot him. You miss if you aim your nerf gun at the guy and you miss him, right? Um, there are certain things that you could do to to kind of balance the system uh, mechanically. So, for instance, we had one marksman on our team, and uh, a marksman had special nerf rounds that did special nerf damage, and he would have to call out sort of like the meme of saying literally like lightning bolt, lightning bolt. He would have to call out every time he was using a marksman round, but because the marksman rounds were all in one clip, he just used them all at the same time. So he would go like, marksman, 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 marksman. And like, and everybody gets a certain amount of dodges, right? So like if the bad guys are running at you and they shoot you with a nerf gun and it hits, you can yell dodge and you dodge that shot. You don't take that damage. (laughs) So like... The and so when fights broke out and there were a couple of them over the course of the night, it was honestly just so chaotic because you're trying to shoot your guns at the guys and and everyone is yelling marksman to mark dodge dodge oh I need a medic I just took six damage you know like like all the and it was just chaos but it was just insanely fun very cool very interesting I would love to do it again next year especially with these guys like I want to see how the system kind of progresses um it was really different and that's kind of what I had always wanted um I have no idea if this is what a typical LARP experience looks like uh but you know the my I think my favorite thing about it to be honest with you is that all of the LARPs apparently happened in the CNO hotel conference room and the CNO hotel conference room is in an old train station um and they are literally in a basement underground, away from everything else, right? Uh, <laughs> That's so where it's we like, send the LARPers. Even, yeah, so it's like, even in Gen Con, the LARPers can't get, they don't get no respect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds exciting. I definitely want to see if I can try something like that next year. I've always been interested in, say, doing a Vampires the Masquerade LARP. Um, yeah, me too. Um, although I wouldn't want to go in like costumes because transporting that stuff would be uh, difficult and I feel like that might be a faux pas but you know um, maybe it's a thing to try at some point Um, also I know that certain other members of our group have registered heavy objections to going to anything that's like you know not hitting people with boffer weapons uh, in terms of LARP so you know who knows how that'll work out Um, but uh, while you were doing that uh, in after uh, Dogs in the Vineyard ended, or Dogs ended, um, uh, friend of the cast, Zhao and I got uh, some food, some dinner at the food trucks. I do want to give a shout out to the food trucks because they were numerous and tasty and crowded, but that mean, meant that the mall was also less crowded. So it was it was uh, easier to get food at the Chick-fil-A if you wanted to do that. Um, but uh, uh, the real thing uh, to talk about then is right after that, we went to the Legendary Drunk Ass Party 9. This is the ninth year that they've been doing it. Um, and, uh, you know, you don't drink, so you know, obviously it, w- it wouldn't be as much of a fun thing for you. But for anybody who does, I'd highly recommend this event. You basically go eat some food. Uh, it was more food than I expected, which is why we ate dinner first. But uh, uh, you get, like, an entree. And then uh, after you eat the entree, they do some announcements. You leave for 15 minutes. And uh, then you come back and you play drinking games. Um you basically like they had like normal ass drinking games like beer pong and flip cup, which is not a thing I had done since college. So you know it was fun to kind of revisit that. I still have still got my flipping fingers 
Um, I did not play beer pong, so I don't know if I'm still good at that or not. Um, uh, and then uh, their signature game, which they had three tables of, is called Death Cup, which is essentially um, kind of it's like a dice rolling game combined with a quarters game. Uh, combined with some speed elements. It has way too many rules, but it felt very appropriate for Gen Con. Uh, that, you know, like, there's this overcomplicated system that's just, like, you're just supposed to get drunk, dude, right? Um, it, it, it felt like a nerds drinking game, which is a lot of fun. Um, then they had some board games. They had some, like, normal board games to play, but they also had Drunk Quest, which is a game that is basically like Munchkin. Um, and let me tell you, getting drunk is the only way to make Munchkin tolerable, because um, I, I do not like Munchkin. But I do like love Drunk Quest, because you basically just drink play until you're... Uh, until you're drunk and then you're done. Uh, so that's the thing you enjoy doing. If you enjoy imbibing, I would highly recommend uh, uh, the legendary drunk ass party. Um, I also managed to hand out a lot of our, our of our of our chips at that party. So hopefully some of you that were there are listening to this. Hey, um, shout out to any new listeners. Yeah, follow us on Twitter. Donate to Patreon. Send us questions on Gmail, but yeah, that's not yet, buddy. Uh, but yeah, that was basically the end of my Saturday night. I, I almost quite literally stumbled home, uh, and went to sleep. Uh, you were gone by the time I woke up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So I flew out super early in the morning on Sunday. So I had nothing on, uh, I had nothing on Sunday. What did you do on, uh, on Sunday after I was gone? So the one thing that, uh, I did was, uh, Nick and I went to see the, it was a panel called the design philosophy of Pathfinder 2E which was a super neat panel um, about, like, basically why they made some of the decisions they did when, when building out 2E, um, along with, uh, I had missed it because they had done it the previous day, but they, they, they kind of reannounced that the Advanced Player's Guide is the hard book coming after, hardback coming after, uh, the next, it's coming out next fall, I believe, um, which has four new base classes, uh, or not new, they're all old base classes, but there's Swashbuckler, Oracle, um, what was the other ones? Uh, Witch and Investigator, um, which I thought That's were cool. yeah an interesting set. Um, plus, they said there's going to be 60 pages of archetypes. Um, they what they they asked kind of the room to spread that it's 60 pages of archetypes, not 60 archetypes. It should be close to 60, but not exactly 60. Um, uh, and they basically just talked about like kind of some of the decisions they they went into, how they were trying to make things um, like you know like archetypes are really cool. But, um, you know, wizards and clerics don't really get cool archetypes because they've got so much writing on, on their kind of core class features already. It's hard to swap stuff out for them. And so either you had really bad archetypes or really overpowered archetypes. You just get more things um, kind of in the space where, like, some of the archetypes were kind of deemed mandatory-ish. Um, and so uh, they, uh, went into a, they, they went into a little bit about uh, well, some, of the, some of the math there. Like, um, essentially... The, the they thought some of the math was kind of onerous, so that's why they simplified simplified it down to this uh, system. Um, apparently, creature building is like the the way the way that uh, Mark Seifter put it um, was that uh, monster building is kind of top down ish now instead of bottom up ish, which is normally not a, a thing I, I hear described as positive, but it makes sense in this context. Essentially, um, the way they put it is that when you were like, let's say you were if you were building like a uh, a fey warrior right you build it up using the tools and then it would have like terrible stats because then you know fey have 
bad base warrior stats. And then they would be like, and then add a discretionary value between one and eight to get it where you want to. And that's not really a system, right? Like that's just kind of like, um, like giving you some rules and then telling you to do what you want with it anyway. Um, whereas this system kind of is supposed to start at the top where you kind of like have a chassis, uh, for, uh, building some of this stuff. Um, and this is all going to come out in Dungeon Master's Guide. The monster rules might be released earlier, they said. Might be. Because um, they want to get that out to us. But there's, you know, th- they would release it uh, as early as possible. But, you know, there's, like, layout and stuff to do. Yeah, I um, mean, we've talked about, uh, we've talked in the past about uh, bottom-up versus top-down monster design. And I'm a big fan of top-down. So that really sounds great to me. Yeah. Um, this panel is also... Uh, 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 streamed so you can go watch the vod i'll link it in the description um i might actually go back and watch some of the q a or some of the other panels that we missed um because i think they streamed all of them um and uh you know i thought it was i thought it was definitely interesting um people asked some interesting questions about kind of like uh what they wanted like what what they wanted to do with the future of it and whatnot um and they seem really excited uh you know part of it part of this is that they can like they they like like they said that because everything is so modular and so well done modularly, they can just bolt things in as they want, right? They've kind of future-proofed the system um, to a certain extent so that you don't run into uh, kind of the same problems they did in the past. Kind of these, these, like these architect problems, right? They have 10 years of experience. They've built the system open enough so that if they want to bolt something in, they can without too much problem. But making everything into a feat, you can kind of just like throw things in uh, to swap out feats. Um, they've opened the doors the door for kind of like uh, class archetypes. One of the things that they said that I thought was particularly powerful was, um, uh, you know, uh, basically there were some archetypes, like a lot of classes would get kind of the same flavor of archetype, but in, you know, like seven different flavors, right? Like the the gun, uh, the gun cleric, the gun, gun paladin, the gun, like... Uh, ranger, rogue. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the gun, sure. gun, gun ranger, they all had archetypes associated with them. And so that was like... With the, uh, uh, you know, there were like hundreds of pages of archetypes. They're all basically doing the same thing, but the way they've built it now, they can make one archetype and you can just kind of apply it to your class forever. Um, and if you feel like you're missing something, you can, they can add more feats that maybe, you know, don't apply to everybody of the archetype, but like they give like it was for the spell slinger, right? Which is the wizard gun archetype in PF one. They can make the regular gun. The gun person is what Mark Seifter called the archetype. And if they want to add the spell slinger, ability you can add a feat that gives them that ability you know pre um uh you know prerequisite being having some spellcasting ability but they can just add that in even if it's not in the first the first where, where it's released they can just add it in at some other point as a feat and still have it right on and you know uh, add it onto existing archetypes uh, which i thought was uh it's a really cool design decision um and I'm excited to see more of PF2. I haven't finished the rulebook myself. Um, I suspect that within the next week or two, we will do a review of that. Um, but that was basically um, the last event I did. The only th- other thing I think we have to talk about is uh, is the dealer hall. Did you did you have anything else? You, any, anything in particular that you wanted to call it from the dealer hall? No. I mean, so this is one of the most interesting uh things that i felt this year at gen con just like after five years of going to the dealer hall i've sort of seen it all before um which isn't to say all of it but like the chess x places are still the chess x places the paizo line is long for the first couple of days and thins out a little bit later you know um 
And uh, and that was maybe my like overall de- defining experience coming out of Gen Con is for the first time it sort of feels like I'm going back to something I've seen before rather than exploring something new for the first uh, for the first time. I made only a few purchases this year. Uh, I didn't I didn't buy anything kind of like bigger flashy. I got the Pathfinder two ebooks. I got the Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Fourth Edition book. Um, I got a pair of earrings for Rachel, and I uh and I also got you know every year when i go to gen con i get a new dice set um just as like a thing oh and then i also got uh this is one of my most this is one of my favorite kind of hauls coming out of gen con actually i got a print uh signed by wayne reynolds of the hearthstone card archmage antonitis uh which he did the art for i was actually really hoping to get a print of the hearthstone card brawl because i love to play warrior and brawl has is also done by wayne reynolds and is in the classic set and would be overall cooler but the only hearthstone card he had was antonitis so fair enough um so that was the shit uh but otherwise yeah i did not spend all that much time doing uh doing things in the dealer hall how about you so uh, I walked through, um, kind of like you, I felt mostly the same way. Um, there is always some cool stuff to look at and always more stuff to buy, I think. Um, I almost bought myself a set of, uh, I think it was called like Africanite gemstone dice that looked really cool. Um, but, you know, I decided to pass on that. Um, I got myself a, p- a set of dice from the, uh, from the Gatekeeper Games people. They do have these dice. I love their dice. I got a couple sets last year, and this year they had a Gen Con endorsed dice set. Um, they had two of them, actually. One in the colors of the new mascot, um, Genevieve, who's the dragon for Gen Con. Um, but they also had this half-black, half-sparkle set that I love. I absolutely adore. Uh, both Nick and I get a, got a set that came in a special box. Um, so that was I was really happy to get that. Um, but the big thing I saw, and I know you weren't as sold as it as I was. Um, I basically dragged you over to this booth because I thought you would enjoy it. But it's this thing called Fate of the Norns, um, which is a kind of like an expansive product line. It includes an RPG, it includes a, a board game, and it includes a couple of lore books, which are basically like well-researched um, retellings of uh, of Nordic mythology, translated from like you know uh, from some of it translated from like original Norse and Icelandish. I'm holding right now the uh, the Illuminated Edda which is basically just like one of these these full retellings, or it's basically a retelling of all the core Norse mythology, and it is a beautiful fucking product. I have, I just thought that it, that it was too pretty not to buy. I was actually about to walk out without getting this book because I didn't think I could fit it, and I just bought it and shoved it in like a, a, a spare pouch in my backpack because it's it just, it was, it was too nice. Um, I'm very excited to read through it. Um, I think they make beautiful product, like I said. I'm excited to play around with the board game, um, and maybe next year I'll pick up the, uh, uh, maybe next year I'll pick up the RPG. Maybe we can see if we can find a game of it. Um, but it's based around runes um, instead of based around uh, dice rolls. I'm interested to see how that actually works out. But um, like, I said, like, basically what happened is I walked past it and it like looked really cool. And I just kind of like stopped and walked over and got the pitch and I I, I was sold on it. Um, I know you weren't as much, but it was. It's, it's just yeah, so I, you know, I actually was fairly sold on it. Um, the I was initially really unimpressed. It sounded kind of gimmicky and like it wouldn't be a lot of fun the way that they kind of explained the rune system. Um, but then they explained that legacy system at the very end, which is basically like 
the uh, the idea is that if your character dies and goes to Valhalla, your next character gets a certain set of bonuses or something kind of along those lines. And I was like, all of a sudden, I was like, oh my god, that's so cool, right? Because it it not only inspires players to be risk takers and do cool, awesome shit, but it rewards them for it, right? And it also kind of adds like a little bit of like that sort of roguelike appeal where, you know, after a run, you will rerun and... Uh, uh, and try and try and like make it happen. So the idea that there's a game system out there that's like, will this get you to Valhalla? Is a is a core game mechanic sounds really awesome to me. Um, that said, uh, I didn't quite think it was worth the dollars, uh, so I did not buy it. Yeah, um, I also did not buy the core RPG. I bought a couple of lore books and uh, I bought the board game because I felt like I thought that was a thing that I had a, stood a chance of more likely playing in the next year. Um, uh, the board game is, is essentially you talk through the creation myth. Um, before, before I dragged you over, uh, one of the guys was telling me that the way he likes to run his, his RPG games is you play a game of Vanaguard, which is the kind of creation myth, and then you play your Fate of the Norn Ragnarok game in the end times of the world that you created in the Vanaguard board game. Um, and that just sounded like such a cool idea to me. He says like the, you know, essentially it's, it's like the Norse creation myth. So like you, if you're playing as, uh, as a uh, bear, you're playing as the bear. And if you die, there are no bears type of things. Um, and, uh, it sounds really cool. And I'm really excited to dig into all of this. Um, you know, it was a system that kind of sold me just on the pitch. Um, cause I didn't, cause obviously I didn't know about it beforehand, but uh, I'm thinking I'm going to try and find a game of it to play next year. Hopefully I'll be able to play the board game before then. And, uh. Uh, I don't know. The guys who were there were really friendly, too. I'm going to send them a, a, or put a link to them in the, in the description as well. Um, uh, but that was kind of my big stuff from the dealer hall. Unfortunately, Archivos wasn't there, so I didn't get to walk over and, and uh, talk to them like I usually do, which, which made me very sad. Um, but, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, oh, oh, so something I wanted to shout out that I thought was cool but didn't okay. end up going in on was there was this, uh, I think they're called like geek on. Um, I'll see if I can find them. They, they sold this gamer backpack or this board game backpack is this massive backpack. That's, you know, you can fit like giant board games in, right? Like they had a copy of Gloomhaven and a copy of scythe loaded up in one of their demo bags and it fit. Right. Um, and they had me try on a demo one and it was it distributed weight like perfectly. Um, if I had the room and I thought I had a good use for it, I would have gotten one. Um, uh, they were cheaper at the uh, at the the con. They were like refil- retail for two hundred, and they were selling at the con for one sixty, which is apparently the Kickstarter level price. Um, but uh, I don't think I have enough of a need for it. But it was a it it was a really solid product from what I demoed of it. So if you're in the mood, if you're in the uh, in the kind of the the need for a a, a board game carrying backpack, uh, I. Like I said, I think it's called Geek On or Game On. I'll see if I can find it, and I'll link it in the show notes. Um, yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I think that's it. Uh, yeah. That's it for Gen Con. Uh, that, uh. Is, that is Gen Con 2019 from, uh, from at least the two of us. Now, that was most of our weeks, uh, but I did want to 
highlight some things uh, that have come out that we have ended up talking about quite a bit. Uh, the first is the final reveal for all of the Hearthstone cards for the new expansion, which releases tomorrow, um, is in. And one of the coolest cards that they added in this set is called Zephyrus. Zephyrus has an is a two mana three two, and it has an ability that says Battle Cry. If your uh, if your deck has no duplicates, if it only has single you know single cards rather than two of a certain card, you can summon you can discover rather the perfect card. So what Zephyrus will do if you're running a singleton deck where your deck is only one ofs. You, it will summon for you uh, three cards from the classic set or the basic set that it thinks would be really useful to you in the current situation. Now, Zephyrus takes into account the amount of cards in your deck and the amount of cards in your hand, but it doesn't have access to what's called secret information. Secret information is the contents of your deck, the contents of your hand, uh, any secrets that are on the field. It can't read any of that kind of stuff for both you and your opponent based on like the way that it's programmed, but the idea is that like it will give you value if you need value it will give you tempo if you need tempo it will give you you know uh most interestingly of all lethal if you need lethal uh zephyrus has widely been hailed as a very powerful uh addition to hearthstone that uses some really interesting tech and i wanted to highlight a really crazy Zephyrus lethal play that happened today in part of the uh, like the reveal stream. Basically, what Blizzard does is right before set releases, they invite all of the Hearthstone YouTubers and content creators to Blizzard HQ, and they say build decks with the new cards, play each other. Um, <clears throat> and this one uh, this one guy made a priest deck, and he was playing against uh, Trump, who was playing a singleton Zephyrus deck. They were both playing singleton. Uh, they were both playing singleton decks and one of, and so, uh, the board state was, there was a seven, eight buffed Karen blood hoof on the board and the priest player had changed his hero power to something that will, when, when it targets a minion, give them plus three, plus three. So he can make it a 10, 11 if he wants. And, um, he what and trump was at about 20 hp and the casters were sitting there at the desk and they were just like oh man you know zephyrus will be powerful but will it give him lethal right does he buff karen bloodhoof and then send karen into face for 10 damage and maybe zephyrus will give them pyroblast for next turn with the assumption that you can just like pyroblast them for 10 or something kind of along those lines and what happened was zephyrus when played, granted uh, the priest player the shaman card Wind Fury, which grants a minion Wind Fury, so that he could give the 10-10 Wind Fury attack twice and win the game. Now, funnily enough, all of that happened, and Trump had a uh, had a had a card on the field called Pressure Plate, which says when you cast a spell, destroy an enemy minion. So he cast the Wind Fury on Karen Bloodhoof, and the Pressure Plate destroyed Bear, uh, Karen Bloodhoof, which lost the game. But it was so cool to see literally the cool thing about Zephyrus in action, where everyone was like, "Oh, you know, twenty HP. How do you get how do you get lethal out of that? Hmm, who knows?" And then, yep. 
Wind Fury. It's in the basic spe- uh, it's in the basic set. Of course he can give it to you. Uh, I think that is so cool, and I think that it is like one of the digital card game specialities of uh, of Hearthstone. So I just wanted to highlight it on the cast because I just think that's awesome. Yeah, no, it's so- it sounds really cool. I'm kind of curious about the tech behind it. Um, yeah, I'm insanely uh, curious about the tech behind it. Everyone on Twitter, like when you ask the Hearthstone devs on Twitter, they all say it's it's magic. Which I, which I, I think is funny. It's becoming a little bit of a meme, uh, but uh, but I also wish I got like a more serious answer. Like, is it machine learning? Did they just like, did they just like play a gazillion games of like Auto Zephyrus? I feel like that couldn't be the case. They had to do they had to do some really like interesting and innovative shit in order. Yeah, to I'm sure there's some math for like lethal puzzle type things, um, but. Like for for otherwise figuring out what would be a good card in the situation that doesn't give you lethal, I feel like that's a lot more ethereal. Rather, like, to, I guess is the best way to put it. And so at that point, you could do some like AI machine learning stuff to figure out uh, how that works. Um, but uh, on my side, the only real thing I think to talk about during the week was uh, I want to recommend a podcast. There's this lawyer uh, based in Michigan. I might have talked about him before. His name is Richard Hogue. He does a podcast series. It's also a YouTube series called Virtual Legality. Um, he does some, like, standard, like, stuff where he does, like, reviews of, like, Game of Thrones. Um, but the interesting part is he's a contract lawyer um, and, like, a copyright lawyer. He, he, um, uh, he does stuff for some software companies. He's not directly involved in games, but he likes to comment on game stuff because he's a big game player. Um, and he just kind of gives legal breakdowns of a bunch of stuff that's happening. Occasionally he'll also like do quotes for articles on like game biz daily. Um, but he like will go through, uh, he's a little bit dry sometimes, but he goes through kind of all the things that are happening in the games industry that have kind of like weird legal consequences. Um, the most recent one for instance being, uh, I don't know if you saw this buddy, but apparently the ESA put all the personal information for every journalist that was at E3 was just Oh my god, I did available. see that. I was like, how the fuck did that happen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, so he, he goes through kind of like, you know, who, like, is the, is, could the ESA be theoretically liable? He, all, he does a standard, like, lawyer thing, like, this isn't legal advice, right? You know, but he's like, you know, would this, would, would these statutes apply from his reading of it? Like, would the GDPR apply? Um, and part of it seems to be that, like, the ESA might have their ass covered at this point because, you know, their, their terms and conditions say that they can release the information for some reasons. But this is clearly, like, one of those things where the spirit of the of the, of the the rules was violated um, by accident. There's a whole thing there. I don't think I know enough about it to really talk about it, but I did want to shout out uh, Hoaglaw. Um, he's a small channel right now, but uh, he does good work. And he does some really cool explanations of, of various and sundry uh, legal theories. Um, uh, what, like what else can I point to? Oh, uh, around the time the Apex came out, he we went through kind of the FTC guidelines on like disclosure because there were a bunch of people who kind of were advertising it, but maybe weren't so clear about the fact that they were paid to advertise it, um, influencers and whatnot. Uh, so uh, yeah, I want to give him a big recommend. I'll link him in the description. Um, otherwise, what? Did I do anything? Oh, you know what? You should talk a little bit about uh, Fire Emblem since you've been playing that. Oh, I have been playing a little bit of Fire Emblem. So I've been playing what people are colloquially calling Fire Emblem Persona Emblem because uh, the first half like takes – or the first – I don't know how much of it takes place in a school. Um, I bought a Switch for the first time and, uh, and I have played – 
Uh, and I played Fire Emblem a bit on my travels. I haven't gotten very deep into the game. It, uh, it, I, I like it quite a bit. It reminds me a lot of Valkyria Chronicles, which I had a really good time with. Um, but I will say that the system is kind of easy and not amazing. I don't know. Um, the, the maybe maybe it's just a little too like JRPG for me. Um, it's very turn-based combat, but I have found all of the tactics and strategy to be really easy and straightforward to figure out. And I haven't really hit uh, a difficulty point. Maybe three to five hours deep into the game, I have no idea how long I've been I've been playing the game. Uh, but I will say that the characters are really cool and really interesting uh, and really fun. One of the things about Fire Emblem Three Houses is that you choose one of a couple of different sort of like ruling families. Uh, there's the Lester. Alliance, which is a merchant kind of, uh, like, republic sort of um, set of city-states. There is, like, the Fader Kingdom or something like that, um, which is, like, a holy kingdom of knights and paladins and stuff like that. And then there is an empire of something. Um, <clears throat> and the three different characters that represent those three political interests are all, like, individually cool and unique. Uh, the girl... Uh, who represents the Empire, is being widely compared to Daenerys Targaryen, who we all know was once my waifu. Um, and... Uh, and then there's the and then the the paladin guy apparently gets really cool halfway into the game. And then there's Claude, who is the merchant guy that I went for. Uh, and he's just a bro. He's just, like, funny and snarky, which is cool. Um... What, what, what's the name of that faction? Like, is it, which one's the Golden Deer? Is that him? Yeah, that was the Golden Deer. Yeah, so it's the Golden okay. Deer, and then the Blue Lion, and then the Black Eagle. The Blue Lion being the Holy Guys, the Black Eagle being the Empire. Um, yeah. I, I've heard, I, you know, I have heard that there's a lot of memes running around about Fire Emblem that are pretty fun. Uh, but uh, uh, the the memes surrounding kind of Golden Deer House, which is a little bit more like Animal House, uh, are pretty are pretty choice, and I love them. Yeah, I, I definitely saw one today that was something like, uh, uh, what was it, like, uh, you know, like, you know, each character describing their house, like, our house is edgy, our house is depressed, and then uh, for the Golden Deer it was uh, our house, and the rest of the class yells, in the middle of our street, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, even though it was very on brand, <laughs> I guess I would say. Um but, uh, but yeah, so I'll, I'll probably be playing more Fire Emblem. I'm having an okay time with it. Um, and, you know, we can, we can get back into it a little bit later. Um, I guess the last thing I can mention is uh, uh, on Wednesday, actually, uh, Nick and I played some uh, Smash Brothers. And uh, that was the day after the hero came out, which is the Dragon Quest character for, uh, for Smash Brothers. Um, and that character is interesting, but I think is ultimately going to have some weirdness around him. Um, banned, maybe, unreliable, probably. There is so much randomness in his kit. Um, he randomly crits, instead of it being like tippers, like it is with most of the other sword characters. Uh, his down B gives you a, a random set of four moves from Dragon Quest to use, um, which is kind of hard to pull off and also, like, like I said, incredibly unreliable, but can be incredibly powerful. I've seen some, like, really dumb clips of uh, of people, um, like, you know, like, managing to get the right move off and, like, doing, like, a quick two stocks in a row, which is just insane. Um, uh, and the, the meme I saw for this was, was uh, uh, you know, like, child brain uh, ban hero because he's OP, 
medium brain ban hero because uh, because RNG is bad for the game. Galaxy brain ban hero because he violates Korean gambling laws, um, <laughs> which is like you know it's it's it, it, it's it's a fascinating character. Um, like I said, probably not super reliable. Really cool art. Um, like they've given like they've given him a like. They're like the the alternate costume. Usually, there's like four different colors, and there's two different styles of costume for each character. This one's the opposite. There's four different characters uh, with two styles, uh, with two colors for each. Um, and they're all the different hero. Like there's there are four of the different heroes from, uh, from from Dragon Quest. Um, they all have the same move set. Like it's not like they they're, they're unique in any in any way. But it's cool to have like four different character models for them. Um, but I think that's about it, unless you had anything else you want to talk about, buddy. I do have one uh, final thing that I want to talk about. Uh, so this past Wednesday, when we were at Gen Con, uh, the big announcement finally came down. The next game that my company, Akupara Games, is going to be publishing is called Mutazione. It is developed by the Danish game dev company Diagute Fabrik. And I'm really excited to share you know, the news with everybody about it because, um, you know, it's a really cool game that I've had a lot of fun playing and I have played it a lot over the last couple of months. Uh, it is just in a quick one sentence pitch, like a supernatural, uh, very story focused game. You go to an island inhabited by mutants that were mutated by uh, a meteor impacting it. Uh, about a hundred years ago and delve into some of the secrets behind the island get to know and befriend like all of the inhabitants you get to pick the the interesting plants and seeds and grow flowers and gardens out of it it's a very chill game it's not spooky or creepy really it's just kind of about like these characters and their lives and their drama and i got i was really surprised how invested i got in it to be honest with you um if you know you want to check it out or you want more information, you can always get in touch with me, uh, buddy at akuparagames.com. And uh, and otherwise, you know, there's probably going to be more news coming out in the future, uh, and I'll keep you guys posted. Excellente. Well, if you'd like to email us about things about this podcast, uh, anything that we talked about about Gen Con, um, uh, you can email us at subdurbsplaygames at gmail.com or podcast at subdurbsplaygames.com or simdurbsplaygames.com or podcast at simdurbsplay.games. Um, uh, send us in questions. We're at episode 198 now. Episode 200 is going to be a question-filled spectacular. Um, so send us in your questions so we can answer them. Uh, we've, got a, we've got a handful, but we'd, we'd like more to talk about. Um, otherwise, we're going to have to do something drastic. Um, and by that, I don't know what exactly what I mean. But uh, it, 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 I can promise you it won't be pretty. So send in your questions. Um, you can also support us at patreon.com slash games. Shout out to our first Patreon patron that isn't me, Monik. Thank you, Monik. You're Woo! the best, Monik. Woo! Everybody, yeah. give Monik give a, a high five. From and give us your money. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you can follow us at twitch.tv slash games. We haven't done a ton with it. But I think as we're getting back into LOL, we, we occasionally stream those games and those get at least rebroadcast to, our, to some Durst Play games. So uh, there's that. Um, am I missing anything, buddy? Like us on no. SoundCloud. Like us on, U- on iTunes. Give us reviews. All that, all that niceness. Um, all that niceness. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about before we sign this one off? Nope. I think, uh, I think we're done. 
In that case, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.